0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Jill on Money. How do you build and rebuild trust in corporate America?
1: You can't be afraid to say you're sorry and that you made a mistake. Rebuilding trust is a very hard thing to do. And if you trust, you will be betrayed. So you have to know how to fix those betrayals, how to move on, how to move away from them and recover
0: welcome to the Jill on money podcast we are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs you know this is the show where we try to introduce you to some cool people that we encounter today Joel Peterson he is the chairman of JetBlue Airways but really his background is he's sort of like a a high-level investor and where does he find some of his great ideas He actually teaches at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. He's held a lot of different jobs in his life. He's got a new expanded edition of his book called The Ten Laws of Trust. So here is our interview with Joel Peterson.
1: You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger.
0: So, Joel, we start the program with a very easy question. Ready? I'm ready. What is the best financial or
1: career decision you've ever made? The best financial decision was uh, investing in a company called Ashurion that you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. It had a 1,000 times return on investment. The best career decision I ever made was starting to teach at Stanford Business School mid-career. Really? So I have kind of a cobbled career.
0: I of- want to talk about that cobbled career. So... Where did you grow up? All over the place.
1: Uh, Yeah. Well, I grew up in Iowa, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: then my dad moved to Michigan. He was on the faculty at Michigan State University, and then he went to the University of Wisconsin. So we bounced around the Midwest. You go through school, and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? So the only community I knew was the university community, but I had always been a leader. I'd been the captain of the safety patrol and a student body president and class president. So I thought, how do you merge those two? And I figured, well, what I'll be as a university president. Ah. So that was my idea is that I would become a university president. I had no idea how bad the job really was. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you go to college? So I went uh, one year to Michigan State University, two years to Brigham Young University, and then graduate school at Harvard Business uh,
0: School. Everyone has a little downside. I'm You sorry, can overcome but, it. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So what was your first job when you graduated from Harvard?
1: So I joined Trammell Crow, who is a big real estate developer. He had 163 people working for him at the time, but he posted a little 3 by 5 card on the placement board. Uh, he wasn't even interviewing at Harvard, but he had this little card on. He said, need somebody to go to the French Riviera to develop buildings. And that's what I did. I raised my hand <laughs> and I thought, you know, I don't know anything about real estate. I don't know anything about Trammel Crow, but my high school buddies will never believe that I ended up on the French Riviera.
0: And where on the French Riviera <clears throat> were you?
1: So I went to Aix-en-Provence lovely. in the beginning. And then it ended up that I was in Paris for a year and Lyon. Poor for you. I know. Do tough. you speak French? Yes. Really? Yes.
0: Did you have to speak French before that, or did you learn while you were there?
1: Well, I spoke it before, and then I learned more when I was there.
0: Were you single or married at that time? Married. And so she came along?
1: She came, absolutely. And you didn't have kids? We were supposed to be moving to France, and it took forever to get the papers through. So we had a daughter that was born in Texas. Then we moved with her when she was an infant uh, to Paris, then moved to Lyon and had a child in Lyon. Wow, a French girl.
0: Wow, and so you spent this time working for Trammell Crow. What are you doing? What's your actual job?
1: So I'm leasing and building buildings and actually financing them and kind of being a real estate developer.
0: And then how long did that last? That you were you were in France and then you come back to the states.
1: So it only lasted about two years, and then uh, the company got in trouble, and uh, I ended up. Coming back to the United States to be the treasurer of a company that had no cash. Oh. And if you know what treasurers do, Mm. they manage cash. Mm. So our CFO left, and about six months later, I became the CFO of what became the largest private developer in the world. Wow. And how long were you doing that? So I did that for about 10 years.
0: Why did you leave? Sounds like this was a great time and you were making a bunch of money and the company's doing well. Why did you leave?
1: Well, so the late 80s, there was another meltdown. Real estate is very cyclical. Mm -hmm. It's overbuilt, over leveraged. So by the uh, late 80s, maybe 88, 89, there was kind of of a crisis in real estate again. I was asked to come back in. I'd actually moved to California and had decided to do something else. Uh, I'd done well, and I just wanted a next career. And the partners asked me if I would come back and be the managing partner. So for three years, I commuted from the West Coast to Dallas and worked on that. Then finally, I decided I need to do something else. And, uh, and what was the next thing? So the next thing was I started buying companies. And just for I, fun? Yeah. Because you somebody, could do that. And then I realized I actually know how to work with entrepreneurs and help them be more disciplined and richly actually build great companies. And somebody said to me one day, hey, you're in the private equity business. And I said, what's that? <laughs> I had no idea what it was. <laughs> I thought it was just buying companies. Yeah,
0: I'm just buying companies. We got, we got a name for that. That's <laughs> yeah. great. When you go through that experience, what are you noticing? This is probably what, the 90s?
1: This is the early to mid 90s. Yeah.
0: So what are you noticing that has changed in these companies as time has progressed? Because you work with the Trammell Crow, you see a small company turn into a big one. Is there a different mindset in the 90s that you
1: encounter? So I found for uh, much of this that it was the same kind of thing, except the the thing that surprised me the most was how smart and capable these managers were. I think as developers, you tend to be kind of very entrepreneurial, very self-confident, swashbuckling, uh, you make your own decisions, you carve your own way. And so developers have a certain ego, the way they go about their business. And so I think I probably absorbed some of that, therefore dismissed a little bit people who were corporate executives. And I found that they are really brilliant, capable, hardworking, honest. So I really liked working with them, but I found that they could also use some entrepreneurial nudging some guidance <clears throat> some guidance
0: now do you think the guidance came in the form of managerial guidance or strategy guidance what did you what could you add that they didn't have
1: do you know a lot of it was just a listening ear it was allowing them to say what it was that they were interested in doing and reflecting trying to add wisdom asking questions they might not have asked it's a lonely place at the top of it's, it's lonely being an entrepreneur mm. being a founder it's lonely being a CEO and a lot of them don't have people that they can really bounce ideas off of, who will ask good questions. And so I found that a lot of what I did for developers, I could do for founders, entrepreneurs. Basically, you're a shrink. It's kind of what I do, right? You know. Okay.
0: So now you buy a bunch of companies, take me into the '90s. What's going <coughs> on next?
1: I was on the board of the the uh, the advisory board for the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, and the guy who was teaching the real estate finance course left. And so they said, would you fill in for just a year? It won't And you know real estate. It won't take much time. Right. No big so deal. No big deal. Just fill in for this course. Well, I ended up for a course that met two or three hours a week in two or three sessions. I ended up spending 40 plus hours a week preparing, grading papers, everything. And I found it was really hard mm-hmm. and compelling. And I liked it. So 27 years later, I'm still doing it. Uh, that's <laughs>
0: fantastic. Yeah. All right, let's talk about your book. You wrote The Ten Laws of Trust. Why is trust the theme of this book? What is it about trust that you think is so important to discuss in corporate America?
1: Well, I think it's the most important currency a leader has. Things get done more quickly. There's more innovation. Decisions are more durable. And people are happier if they're dealing in a high-trust environment. And fundamentally, as a leader, you can either deal with power, which is typically driven by fear or greed, You control promotions. You control who gets what bonuses. Or you can uh, deal with people through trust, through saying, I'm a fiduciary for you. I'm going to help you achieve your career goals. The former is actually quite effective. You know, people will do things. If you put a gun to their heads, they'll do stuff. Right. So it works until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, there's blowback. And if you're ever in a turnaround And you don't have high trust with your customers, with your suppliers, with your employees, with your creditors. You will not be able to turn around the company. And that's really kind of where where the rubber meets the road is when you have to do hard things. So to me, trust is this really precious commodity.
0: I'm listening to you talk about it and I'm thinking some of the leaders that I know or I've met or interviewed, they say that, they want to be completely transparent but in practice I think the hard part of it is it requires a certain amount of honesty and sometimes being honest is hard so you come into my office and you say gee I want this 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 and this and I say oh well Joel you know what we're gonna really try but really what I should be saying is Joel you're not on that track right I'm so sorry But that's not where we see you in this organization. So sometimes, I don't even think it's as nefarious as I'm lying to you. It's that I have a hard time really delivering that that news to
1: you. The reason you have a hard time doing it is because you want to be loved. Right. You're solving to be loved. Right. And you should be solving for being respected. Right. If you're solving to be respected, you'll say, you know, we'd have to make these changes for that to be real. And it gets so much easier when you say, I'm going to be transparent and honest and people can rely on me. I deliver on what I say. You may not always like me, but people really hold on to this hope that they'll always be loved. that people will always understand there was a reason I did that and I'm forgiven for that. Whereas I think you have to develop a really thick skin. It's not hard when you say, I'm really doing what's best for the enterprise. Mm. Overall, I'm doing what's best for the greatest number of people, and I'll take some hits.
0: So how can managers and leaders get more comfortable with not being liked? What's your advice about the
1: respect aspect of this? I think if you show respect to others, and if you are transparent and you tell the truth, the truth is a really powerful thing, and over time, it will always out. Mm. So I think if you do that, and people can rely on you to say, "I know that when Jill tells me something, that that's what's going to happen." If you've lost trust,
0: how can you regain it? So let's bring the clock back. It's two thousand nine, the financial crisis, the banks. You know, it sort of took us to the edge. No one goes to jail. No one. There's not big prosecutions, but you know, they've gotten their butts handed to them. Right. Okay. Right. If you were coming in as a private equity investor, or even just a you know a consigliere to somebody mm. Lloyd Blankfein calls you up and says I love you what, what should I do what would be your advice if you've lost trust
1: stop saying we're doing God's work
0: <laughs> 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 I love Lloyd but I mean really that was bad <laughs> That was terrible it was terrible
1: I mean you've got to reestablish a covenant with people that you are going to do the right thing, which may mean taking some losses. It may mean eating some crow. It may mean doing, but you've got to pay that price. I mean, that's the first thing that you've got to do. And then you've got to behave in a way that is trustworthy going forward. And I think you have to expect that it's going to take some time to rebuild that. You can't be afraid to say you're sorry and that you made a mistake. Rebuilding trust is a very hard thing to do. And if you trust, you will be betrayed. So you have to know how to fix those betrayals, how to move on, how to move away from them and recover. This is Jill on Money.
0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst and host of this, the Jill on Money podcast. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations Marcus offers simple secure access to FDIC insured savings products including a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average Marcus also offers certificates of deposit including a no penalty CD get inspired by your savings account and start saving today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow you can money visit marcus.com forward slash save national average data provided by informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed marcus deposits products provided by goldman sachs bank usa member fdic and now back to our interview with joel peterson tell me more about the the idea of what's going on at a place like JetBlue. what is it that keeps you hooked into this company that you really love so much.
1: So we had the chance to build a culture from the ground floor, which is one of the great things about starting a business, is you can build it the way that you want to build it. But then we, do, we have JetBlue University in Orlando, and we bring people in, and they stay a lot longer there in training, and we train them as hospitality mm. people, not just as flight attendants, but really as hospitality. And we select for really nice people thoughtful people everywhere throughout the organization.
0: How do you select for
1: nice? You interview, you do reference checks, and that's one of the characteristics. In a lot of organizations, you're not you're selecting for something else. I think if you select for nice, it fundamentally changes the cult. You have a culture then that is a nicer culture.
0: Give me something bad that happens at JetBlue and how that nice culture
1: supports it. Uh, so I, I was tempted to tell you the story of the... Uh, meltdown on Valentine's Day 2007 when we stranded people on the tarmac for eight and nine hours. Oh yes, do tell. JetBlue doesn't want me to talk about that anymore because it's so far back in our history that we've kind of buried it. But I actually look back on that and think, we recovered nicely from that. We alienated all kinds of people Mm. and we, we did our voluntary Bill of Rights for customers. We didn't wait for Congress to come in and do that. David Neelman, who was our founder, got on TV. He went on The Letterman Show. He went on Bill O'Reilly. He talked to everybody and basically did a mea culpa, fell on his sword. And I remember pulling David aside and said, David, you're way too apologetic for this. Everybody had the same problem. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. But he he really felt emotionally. I actually think the answer to your question is how do senior people who are under pressure behave? Mm. When the bullets are flying, how do they behave? Mm -hmm. And it's a really telling uh, message to the rest of the organization. If they're losing it and throwing things and cursing and stomping around, that pretty much gives everyone permission to misbehave. If they're calm, talking about it, analyzing it, being thoughtful... Uh, that's the organization that develops.
0: Where would you start the process of being someone who walked in and into a, a company that seems to be a little bit in crisis?
1: I would ask to come to a board meeting and sit in on how they're doing that. I would ask to listen, maybe even follow around the CEO for a day. I'd ask to meet with everybody in the C suite and listen to them, and I'd just observe. First of all, you have to diagnose before you can recommend. Right. You know, figure out what's really going on. What role
0: does corporate governance play?
1: Because so many of these big
0: tech companies have structures which kind of endow the founder or the CEO with special voting rights. It's like how do you hold that person accountable under those structures?
1: Well, you're talking about uh, Facebook. There And I think it's really tough. Mm. I mean, It gives way too much power. You have to superimpose good governance principles over that. And if you give too many rights to a Mark Zuckerberg or anybody else, they'll abuse them. There's that old line by Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. And I think that really happens. And I think that could happen to anybody.
0: What role is diversity playing in a lot of these organizations now? You know, you happen to be sitting in a studio with a woman. (gasps) I know that's
1: shocking to you. It's breaking news, right? I teach at Stanford, so it's hardly shocking. Right, exactly.
0: So how important is diversity and how can we get companies to not just give lip service to it, to live it? Like it's like saying trust, you have to live it. How do we live this?
1: So they have to see the benefits of it, really. I mean, they they have to understand that this is a good thing. And the example I always give is of an orchestra, where if you had all bassoons, it would be miserable to listen to it. Without a diversity of instruments, timbers, and all the things that you get in different instruments, it would be a terrible outcome. People need to understand that. The element that they also need to understand is that if they're all playing different pieces of music... That's even worse. Mm. So diversity for diversity's sake doesn't work. And so I think making that distinction, say we're not just going to have diversity. We're going to have diversity of points of view, every kind of diversity. We really want to tap in to the marketplace so we can learn. It's a little bit like in the book I talk about conflict. You want to have conflict. But healthy conflict. Healthy conflict. Respectful conflict. In fact, I'll sometimes assign somebody to take the other side, say, come prepared to argue against what it is we're recommending and make your case, make a great case. And they get a pat on the back for making a really compelling case because you want to know that.
0: You know, it's funny because there are many people who are conflict avoidant, right? And you want them to air what is going on, not to bury it or have it come out sideways some other part of the day or week. It comes so,
1: out in an uglier way. Exactly. So
0: you want to make sure that they do that. So when you look at your career, which is still going on, what is it that you wish you had done differently earlier on? What is it that you look back and say, I kind of messed that one up. I wish I had to do over on that.
1: I think I realized at some point in time that there was a values conflict. Values are these deeply held beliefs these sense the sense of priorities of right and wrong people don't compromise values they'll compromise strategy objectives tactics all kinds of things they'll compromise and you should be able to work through those but once you know that you have a values conflict with somebody it's time to get out I realized I had a values conflict and I kept thinking I could work it out and I stayed on way too long I should have just. I I should never have come back as the managing partner of this company because it wasn't to be.
0: How do you feel about the advent of values coming into corporations and corporations speaking out? And I, I, it's really interesting that even in the last ten years, that you have companies speaking out about gun violence and racism and um, marriage equality, and that's so different than you think about where we were even. Fifteen years ago. So how do you feel about that change?
1: So I think people should be able to hold whatever views they want to hold. But I always have felt like I am a fiduciary for somebody else's investment. If I wanted to make a contribution to the the rose-growing people somewhere – I'll do that. Mm -hmm. Let's make it, let's do a dividend and we can do that. But to try to make contributions or speak out for different things. I I remember saying with JetBlue, you know, we got in trouble with Bill O'Reilly for flying a number of people out to a Democrat conference somewhere in Chicago. I said, our job is to get people safely from one point to another, not to care about what their political leanings are. Mm -hmm. We don't have a point of view. On that, so we do our job really well. If we're safe and secure, and and provide that we're doing our job, and, and I guess it's where do you draw the line? Right. And uh, and I think everybody has to draw that line. And that's really why you have the judgment of a board and a senior management team. I had a somebody that trained me who said we have to make all things considered decisions, and I've loved that term ever since. Is there are pros and cons to everything, and all things considered. Currently, over time, as it impacts people, this is the best decision.
0: All right. Before we let you leave, I started the interview and I said, okay, what was your best money or career decision? So, any bad financial decisions that you've made?
1: Well, I've taken companies through bankruptcy, uh, which is not that much fun. No. had to let people go. I mean, I've had to do all of the things you have to do when you're uh, managing a fleet in choppy waters. You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay, it's time for
0: the Marcus Minute, presented by Marcus, by Goldman Sachs. In the hot seat today, Joel Peterson. His book is called The Ten Laws of Trust. Joel, are you ready? I'm ready. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? (laughs) Ambivalent. What's always worth spending on? People. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on?
1: fancy car
0: whose face would you put on the dollar bill
1: i was gonna say winston churchill but (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's good winston churchill fine we'll take it how much do you spend on a haircut i don't what do you mean you don't
1: i cut my own hair oh my
0: god okay (laughs) uh it's your last day on earth you got a hundred bucks in your pocket what's your last meal yogurt oh my god Joel (laughs) Peterson that's the most boring question ever yogurt thank you so much thanks to Joel Peterson his book is called the 10 laws of trust we drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday of Jill on money sometimes we slip in a little Friday bonus if you don't want to miss an episode what you should do is subscribe to this podcast you can go to Apple or Stitcher radio.com Google Play anywhere you find those favorite podcasts and don't forget, we love to hear from you, so if you've got a question, send us an email. Ask Jill at JillonMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Tallercio is the best executive producer in the entire world. We are distributed by Cadence13, and our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.